Rusty Quill presents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like wilderness a lot of laughs y'all weird but you yeah, you you were different like you were real different, bro. i can't really put my finger on it and so much more just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip roundabout season two presented by nissan is live now with new episodes rolling out every thursday listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, weirdos. I'm Ava. I voice Alfie and Nej in the show, and I also write it, edit it, produce it. Yeah, I make the show. Welcome to this, the very first ever Not Quite Dead Q&A. Thank you so much to those of you who sent your questions in. For those of you who didn't get a chance to this time around, there will be another Q&A at some point in the future, so don't worry. I've arranged these questions in a way that hopefully gives them a nice sort of flow into one another, and this Q&A is going to have two parts. This is part one, and part two will be coming out around the 2nd of January, as I'll be taking a week next week over the holidays. I'm sorry, I'm slightly croaky, I'm a little bit under the weather, but I'm okay, and we're forging ahead, I'm excited to talk about vampire stuff. Another disclaimer, I do have a cat asleep on my lap as I am recording this, so I apologise for any cat sounds which you may hear throughout this episode. (laughs) Part two will have a lot more stuff about vocal performances and character-specific questions. 
Part one contains a lot of questions about how I'm building on existing concept of vampires in the show and the kinds of ways I tackled coming up with the mechanics of my vampires. So let's dive in, shall we? This first question is a mashup of questions from Biowonderland98 and Fader. This is what they want to know. What's your favourite vampire media and how did it affect Not Quite Dead? What are your favourite pieces of horror and or vampire media that inspired the writing of the show? So I love a lot of vampire media, as is probably pretty evident from the show. My favourites are really wide-ranging. I think that Not Quite Dead owes a lot to Dracula, Twilight, Underworld and the original BBC Being Human and also the vampire Lestat. (laughs) Thinking about the show overall, like its construction and the way it's thinking about putting the story together, I was really conscious of Dracula and being human in particular. I love when vampires as a thing are being investigated, and I like that Dracula is really intrigued as a novel in the mechanics of what Dracula is doing. A lot of the horror is from the symptoms experienced by proximity to Dracula, like what happens to Jonathan, Lucy and Renfield are each separate and distinctive things, which speak to me about the relationship Dracula has to each of them. Renfield is the bottom of the pecking order. Dracula is not perceiving him as an object of desire, so he becomes this monstrous non-vampire servant, essentially subordinate to Dracula. In Lucy, Dracula sees another potential possession, a woman he can claim and turn to make another wife. He's interested in collecting her. He sees her as a potential feather in his cap. For Jonathan, however, I think he's seen as an object of equal desire. He consumes Jonathan in the hopes and aims of transforming himself, not transforming Jonathan. In this way, I think we can think of Dracula as a creature whose behaviour is primarily defined by the relationships he has with these people and the level of respect he has for each of them. Mina presents an interesting conundrum for him, I think. I could go on about this. Where I jump off here with Not Quite Dead is that I'm thinking of Alfie as a kind of rolled up Jonathan, Lucy and Mina and Casper is confused about what he wants to do with Alfie. I think Cass envies Alfie in a lot of ways. There's so much he desires that he hungers for. Explicitly, he wants to drink Alfie's blood, but he also envies Alfie's humanity. As well, I think he perceives Alfie as an intellectual equal. Part of what draws Cass in with Alfie is his fascination with Casper, and Cass likes to be admired, but is obsessed with this perceived reveal of his own monstrousness. Alfie's acceptance of Casper's worst is another thing I think Cass is deeply, deeply desirous of too. Like, he wishes to see himself as Alfie sees him, but he can't. And the connection with being human is a little more obvious, I think. I love a vampire in a medical setting. I really thought a lot about Aidan Turner as Mitchell in the writing of Casper. Cass has so much knowledge and experience in medicine, but he's here working as a porter. It's really interesting to me to place him at this very low rung of the hospital's ladder. It always kind of baffled me in Twilight that Carlisle would risk being a surgeon. It's such a spotlight job, you get a reputation. It may just be a hangover from when communication was much harder, but even way back then, surgeons could have international positive reputations. I wondered if perhaps Carlisle was actually shit at his job because of this, which I find quite a funny possibility. It's really revealing of his ego too. So Casper is kind of like the anti-Carlisle from Twilight. I think then in season two with Nash, he's much more identifiable as a response to specific motifs in vampire literature and other older traditions. Most obviously, he's a response to Lestat, who looks the way he does as a specific nod towards the appearance of Lucifer, this blonde, beautiful thing capable of such monstrosity. 
I think of him as, yeah, this deliberately Luciferian character. But also, he's a resistant force to this idea too, because I don't think he's necessarily compliant with that image emotionally, even though he very physically matches up with that. I also thought a lot about Grecian gods, pagan gods, this kind of thing when I'm thinking about Nesh. I specifically thought about Freyr, the Norse god, who is also symbolic of fertility and rebirth. Nej is this extremely sexual figure. He hunts by seduction, but he does this to avoid death. Ridiculous as it sounds, I think of him as a deciduous tree where the branches are bare, but if you cut the bark, you see there's life underneath waiting for spring. This brings me quite neatly into our next question, which comes from Cry MJ. They want to know this. How did you decide on your middle ground between vampires being considered glittery shallow beings and mindless ancient zombie-like beings? Is this what gave you the idea for the half-mates? I don't know, really. Um, I've thought about my vampires for a very long time, fairly obsessively, and they exist mostly as a way for me to reckon with gripes that I personally have with vampires from other vampire media. Making a vampire in the context of all that existing vampire stuff is kind of like pick and mix. You pluck out what you think is useful and interesting and you leave what you don't like. Some stuff is really important to me. Like, it's super important for me to have vampires that are really sexually fraught. For me, the image of the vampire is inherently one of desire. There's something deeply sexual to me about the need to eat human blood specifically. It's incredibly intimate. It's incredibly interesting as an analogy for desire. And to me, specifically, it's useful for talking about that very specific desire where you simultaneously want to kiss someone and want to become them. Vampires, to me, are powerfully evocative of this. The Half Maze exists because I really love the concept of it not being a sure thing. I don't like how, in some vampire media, a turning is pretty much guaranteed. It can serve a plot really well for that to be how it works in some stories, but I need there to be an element of risk. They also exist to be like the literal version of how Casper sees himself. His self-concept is what the half-maids actually are. They're just hungry, they're insatiable, they don't think, they just consume and die. Over the next few seasons of the show, we'll see them explored more mechanically. We'll also get some groundwork for why the blood turns some people and not others, and it's all like, it's all part of the show's themes and internal logic, and I'm really looking forward to explaining that in text. I hope that answer didn't feel like too much of a cop-out. Sometimes when I'm answering these Q&As, I get a bit self-conscious about which things I'm answering and how I'm answering them in relation to upcoming episodes. I worry I'm sounding a bit like, tune in to find out more. (laughs) Anyway, the next question was anonymous and it asked this. What's your favourite slightly silly ye old vampire rule which you haven't used in the show? I love the no reflections thing. Uh, I find it so deeply charming. It's also one of my favourite Twilight things that this rule was made up by vampires in that world. So it can be used to disprove that someone is a vampire. That's so great. I also really love the stake through the heart. There's too much thinking about medical mechanics of vampires for me to use this as a rule in the show, but it's so sexy as a killing method for me. Like It's weirdly romantic to stab the heart, you know? So intimate too. I love it. But it just wouldn't work in the context of the show, unfortunately. Something I've always found entertaining about old-fashioned vampire rules is the counting grains of rice thing. You throw a bag of rice on the floor, the vampires have to count every single one. I love that so much. It's so funny to me. Interesting to see it getting some use in the recent run of Doctor Who, though that was salt and not rice and they weren't vampires. I don't think. Anyway, no spoilers for Doctor Who. 
have this image in my mind of throwing a bag of rice on the floor for a vampire for whom this rule applies and just being like, oh man, how about we pick up like 10 grains of rice and we weigh how much 10 grains of rice weigh and we'll sweep up all the rest of the rice and weigh that and then we'll estimate how much rice is there. And the other vampire being like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) You need to count every grain of rice. In this very sort of like neurodivergent OCD type of way, it could be something that's equal parts funny. And I think some people might see themselves really strongly in that. Like I know that I do (laughs) as this thing, no, you don't understand. I must do this now. (laughs) I know it makes no sense. I know there are solutions that we could use to solve this problem. But unfortunately, I have to count every single grain of rice. (laughs) Okay. Um, Our next question is from G. This is what they said. Hey, Aira, I'd love to know more about your inspirations for Not Quite Dead, specifically how you decided on which bits of existing vampire lore you wanted to incorporate into your own vampires. Were there things you always knew you for sure didn't want to include, e.g. glittering, and things you knew for sure you did, e.g. drinking the blood of the vampire to become one? Are your vampires complete as they are, or are you still thinking about their physiology and how they work? This follows on from the last few questions neatly, I think. It was both conscious and unconscious, like I said. It's like picking from a pick and mix, which has bits of existing lore you want and think will serve your story. The thing is that in the context of the story, all of your choices are deliberate. And with something like a vampire, which is so powerfully evocative, you really want to make sure that those choices are serving you extremely well. I talked a bit about some things I knew I didn't want to include. In terms of stuff I did want, I knew I needed the vampires to depend specifically on human blood with animal blood not being a suitable substitute. That just makes it way less sexy to me and it is terribly important that they're sexy. (laughs) If they can just drink animal blood, they're basically just people making a weird dietary choice and that to me is less hot. If they need to drink blood from people, however, there's all this guilt, the implicit taboo of the proximity of blood drinking to cannibalism its associations with the consumption of other body fluid, frequently exchanged in moments of intense eroticism. It's a powerful and compelling thing, which to me is entirely the point. Some aspects of the vampire's physiology are fixed points, but there are blanks around those points and grey areas. The show is so vibes-based, I like to give myself lots of space to play and develop these concepts as I write without putting too much pressure on myself to have wholly consistent planning. Also, Vampires just wouldn't work in a lot of ways scientifically. I don't think about it. (laughs) So I guess it's still being developed as I write. But there are core key rules I play by in that process. This actually leads us really neatly into our next question, which comes from Kip. They want to know this. How did you come up with vampire saliva being able to heal wounds and just other vampire mechanics? Because as someone who has very poor wound healing, I can see that being very useful. So... This one is really interesting, actually, and you've given me an opportunity to be such a nerd. Saliva, real saliva that is, has a kind of hormone in it called NGF, which stands for nerve growth factor. You'll have noticed that when an animal is injured, it instinctively goes to lick the wound. Uh, I got really curious as to why that was happening. Is it a cleaning instinct? Is it to comfort themselves? And it turns out that while some excessive wound licking can be a sign of distress, the reason for the instinct is this hormone NGF. NGF has been found in the saliva of a huge number of mammals, including humans, and has been found to increase the speed of healing in surface wounds, especially involved in healing in the mouth. 
The reason that vampires in the show have their magical healing saliva is because of the way that the vampirism thing works. It kind of hijacks the existing systems of a human body for its own purposes. There's a lot of this extremely nerdy science stuff coming in season three, so I won't go into too many details more generally about this. But with the saliva specifically, it's like the vampirism finds the body systems responsible for making the NGF and goes, well, that's shit, and produces something much, much better using those systems. It has limitations and problems, which the show will explore, but it's one of those things that comes from an extremely nerdy origin point. Also, a little disclaimer, saliva is also full of bacteria, so don't go about licking wounds hoping it'll help them heal. It's fine for paper cuts and stuff. That's probably why we have an inbuilt instinct to put our fingers in our mouths when we cut them, actually. But for anything more serious, I'd avoid licking it as a way to try to heal. It's not going to be great. <laughs> our next question comes from Savine. They give me a marvellous opportunity to expand on what I was just talking about by asking this. How did you come up with or invent the real biological mechanics that make the vampires what they are? As a total biology nerd, I love the nitty gritty details and theories about finding ways to ground a fantasy in reality. I would love to know if you already had an entire explanation or if the details and mechanics have come up as you write the narrative. A silly but related question, if saliva and spit have something to do with healing, would a vampire sneeze have healing powers? Thinking of other weird effects the vampire biology you've created may have has been a delight and a good giggle in light of all of the narrative angst. Thank you so much for creating an engaging, mind-boggling and heartbreaking show. I can't wait to hear more and cry more. <laughs> Thank you. You are welcome. It's a delight to make it. To really build on that last question, it's nice to have both. Simultaneously, I have a lot of rules which I'd come up with in detail before I started writing. But I also leave myself a lot of open space to write and explore as I'm in the process of writing the show. So I led with the question about the saliva because I hope it'll help everyone understand the kinds of ways that I approach the mechanics of vampires. I'm not going to talk more about details in terms of how their physiology actually works because I'm writing season three at the moment and I don't want to flippantly start pulling myself into corners. But my obsession with vampires kind of stems from this place of really wanting to make the way they work be more coherent to me. There's a limit to that. I've spoken on Tumblr before about the problem of having an obligate blood drinking creature that's larger than an insect. The only one I know of is the vampire bat. And because blood has such poor nutritional availability, they need to consume so much blood that sometimes they struggle to take off after eating as they become so much heavier. And as a way to combat that, uh, they're basically consistently pissing all of the time forever. And that's just so dramatically unsexy. And it's such an inefficient way to eat. When I was a teenager, I spent some time working out how much blood you'd need to consume as a human being in order to get all of the nutrients you'd need, and it was an insanely high amount of blood. There's also the romance and gothicism of my need for it to be human blood specifically. It's important to me that they need to specifically eat people. So I frame what they do when they consume blood as basically being the equivalent to something between blood donation and putting fuel into a car. Uh, their bodies run on blood as a resource and they can't consume animal blood in the same way a diesel car can't run on petrol. All the mechanical functionality of their original form is still there too. So if they eat human food, their body will sort of process it, but not properly. Only the mechanisms are working. Everything in a body that secretes still secretes, but it's secreting something else, something different, which is being used by the vampire thing that they're infected with in order to do a different job. Basically, yeah. If a vampire sneezed, the mucus wouldn't be like it is in a human. It would function similarly to the spit. 
Uh, this is also true of um, other bodily fluids. That's also fun because the way their body works means any kind of exertion will cause a blood debt for them. So there's a mechanical reason for why they always want to bite each other when they're fucking. <laughs> there's an explanation for like why they even salivate, what's going on with other functions in their bodies and stuff coming in season three. So I'm not going to linger too much on this. As to whether I had it all outlined or if it's ongoing, I have a very extensive overview of the mechanics of the virus of vampirism itself before I started writing, which I started codifying when I was about 15, which is a very, very long time ago. Uh, I actually did a presentation on it for my GCSE qualification in English literature. I had a PowerPoint and everything. <laughs> and at the end, one of my classmates was like, so a vampire is real then, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. I got really good marks, somewhat dubiously. The point was supposed to be for us to research something real. And though I did do so much reading about biology for that presentation, the real meat of it was just storytelling. It was great fun, though. Now I'm writing Not Quite Dead, I use those ground rules, which have changed and developed over the years, to guide story decisions and provide an underlying logic to the functionality of a vampire's bodies. A lot of stuff to do with the day-to-day -day mechanics doesn't occur to me until I'm literally confronted with the problem. Like... For example, the issue of the micro experience of what happens to their teeth. Um, I've known from the outset that vampire teeth and human teeth are different. They have to be because vampire teeth look visually different. And if the body is prioritizing their sharpness and maintenance, they're going to have to be structurally different from a human's tooth too. So their teeth kind of work like coral weirdly. <laughs> That's a not for now problem, but yeah. So I hadn't thought about what happens when the human teeth go. Would they just fall out like baby teeth? And then it becomes a question of what mechanisms are causing the teeth to go, what's happening there. So I opted it for it being this sort of rapid decay. I don't know if you've ever had a particularly bad infected tooth, but the whole experience is truly, truly vile. Anyway, more on that later. Our next question comes from Job Rucker. They want to know this. What was the process like for making the rules for your vampires, like go with a more realistic version than a more magical version? And do you plan to use other classic monsters in the story? I covered a lot of this question in my last few answers, so I won't go into them again. But I do think it's interesting that there's an implication here that the vampires start off as more realistic and then become more magical as the season goes on. I think it's really interesting that you've interpreted it this way. The governing rules have always been the same for them backstage. Uh, in season one, Alfie doesn't really interrogate how the vampires work as much. I also think there's such a difference in Alfie's perspective between before he's a vampire and after. He's so in it in season two. Some of that distance in season one is gone, which is how he's able to think so sharply about the mechanics of vampires and also how he sort of gets over romanticization he does of Casper in season one. Nej can't be romanticized in the same way that Cass can, I don't think, at least not by Alfie. He's right there. He's continually asserting his autonomy and point of view. Ironically, by not communicating clearly with Alfie, which Casper does out of shame and a misplaced desire to protect him, Casper ends up leaving a lot of gaps for Alfie to speculate and dream up explanation for Casper's behaviour. But he doesn't know. He's really subjective. Nej is outspoken. He won't stand for that shit. Well, except concerning that one thing that he won't talk about. I don't plan on exploring other classic monsters in the story. My other favourites are werewolves, and I'm interested in exploring them in their own ways and contexts. I think they get sidelined a lot as a sort of antithesis to vampires in a lot of stories. Not Quite Dead is very much an exploration of my own fascination with vampires specifically, putting a lens on that, exploring that. 
It's thinking a lot about the eroticism of needing to consume other people to live and the politics and philosophy of death, which is something I'm very, very interested in. It intersects with these ideas about the concept of personhood and humanness. How do we define these categories, particularly when it comes to situations when we're trying to decide who doesn't get to count? I think a lot of similar questions could be asked about like other classic monsters. And in particular, these questions do kind of, you know, we can think about them in a, from a different kind of coming in point when we think about werewolves. But I think for me, I would like to do that in the context of their own story. And I do have like specific thoughts about this, but I'm not going to get into that now, lest I end up penning myself into a corner again. And I really don't want to do that. But yeah, this was a really interesting thing to think about because I hadn't framed it like that at all. So it's interesting that that was how you'd receive the story is that they move more realism into more magical vibes. I'm just fascinated by this. I think that's really cool. Thank you so much for asking this question. The final question for this half of the Q&A comes from Fader. They want to know this. How do you think modern queer horror slash queer monsters fit into the history of queerness and queer coding in horror? So I spoke a bit in previous answers about the vampire as a symbol of sex, but... I think thinking of the vampire as an inherently queer figure representative of forbidden desires is also really important because, yeah, there is this tradition of queer monsters and queerness in horror, both explicit and coded. With vampires specifically, I think a lot about how Bram Stoker was just a few years behind Oscar Wilde at school. What this outrageous boy must have represented to poor little Bram is so dramatic in my mind. Dracula, an older man, wants to drain the life force from the young, naive Jonathan. He covets it. He wants to possess a vitality he sees Jonathan as having. It's a fascinating dynamic, which to me speaks about a fear, a fear of becoming prey, and also of what it might mean to have desire for another man. It's important that Dracula is a monster in this story, first and foremost. He lures Jonathan in and keeps him against his will. Jonathan cannot escape, and more importantly, he has no choice but to comply with Dracula's wishes whilst he is a captive. He is blameless in the transaction, a victim of Dracula's desire and not an active participant in it. But I think that in a post Hayes Code world where we've seen the only way for queer characters to be portrayed on screen for decades was as villains and monsters, I think it's natural and totally understandable that as queer people we find ourselves in them. Society treats us like we're monsters, and sometimes we can believe it of ourselves too. I think this is something I'm exploring a lot in Not Quite Dead, these complicated layers of desiring someone and wanting to be them, and all these shades of love and envy and fear. There's often so much danger in our lives. To use a recent example, let's think about Bones and All, because I think the cannibalism in that film and the book it is based on is so evocative of what vampires are doing. The eaters, as they're called, are born the way they are. They struggle to exist in society which fears and shuns them, but arguably rightly so because they like, they fully do eat people, you know, um, but they can find community with each other. They find in other eaters something that non-eaters will never understand. So although Marin and the boy, uh, Timothy Chalamet's character, although they're in a heterosexually passing relationship, there's an inherent queerness to it overall. I think that in my show and in Bones and All, it's interesting that although the central characters are undeniably monsters who are undeniably dangerous, they're also marginalised, victimised, in danger, living precariously, unable to access even the most basic amenities at times. And this ostracisation and alienation is the root of the ways they are most dangerous. With access to proper resources, it would be possible to make it so that these monsters presented no more threat to the average person than another average person would pose them. 
but they're denied resources and the ability to care for themselves. So the hate the world has gets into them, eats them alive. It's fascinating to think about and explore. It can get pretty heavy pretty quick, though. Uh, So I'm going to move on. I love thinking about this, though. And if anyone would like to hear me ramble more about queerness and monstrousness, let me know because I'd absolutely love to make a bonus episode about that for you. And with that, that's the end of this first part of the Q&A. Thank you so much to those of you who've asked these questions. I had such good fun answering and exploring them. I hope you enjoyed my responses. A huge thank you to our supporters on Patreon for help making this show happen. Big love to Rip, Tal, Cal, Sethamu, Billy, Isaac, Dorian Elias, James Farrell, Cheryl TZ, Emily Farrell, Jay Balloon, Kira Daharan, M. Mosen, Iris Lajolai, Ranjifa Tarandis, Anthony Cullen, Sarah Kelly, Bart Ping, B.E. Albert, Azrael, Grumpy Vile, Lesamir, Riley Fox, Evander Cade, The Empty Quarto, Natalie Brunet, Lisa Gartrell Yo, Luca, Anthony, Jess Emsley, Kira, Stephen Kowsler, Buy Wonderland 98, Liz, Logan Cheshire, Quinn Maddox, Yvonne Budden, Angelique, Sunflower Ash, Starlight, Am Strange, Aiden, Baz, too lazy for this, Alex, Foxglove Newton, Amanda Crawford, Ash Blazinski, Mika, and Pearl. Speak to you in a couple of weeks, folks. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.